Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, we'll present comments about the Delta variant of the coronavirus from the state's chief medical officer and also from a doctor at Ohio State University. I'll talk with someone from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation about the new child tax credit payments that began arriving in the mailboxes of millions of Americans this week. In about 20 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend talks with Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose about the special election next month for two congressional seats in Ohio, early voting underway already. She'll also talk with the new police chief in Columbus, Elaine Bryant, and she'll have an update on unemployment fraud in the state, as well as the staffing shortages that Ohio's long-term care facilities are experiencing. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with the head of the American College of Preventive Medicine, an Ohio native, about the role public health agencies play in policy development. Earlier this week, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, the state's chief medical officer, and Dr. Andy Thomas, chief clinical officer of the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, discussed the coronavirus in Ohio. Here are some comments from that news briefing. This runs about eight minutes. Based on the trends we're seeing, it's clear that the Delta variant is on the rise in Ohio. Now, if we look at the wider span of the last several months, it's true that the Delta variant doesn't make up a huge portion of all the COVID variants we've detected. And in fact, since January, it only makes up about one and a half percent of the samples we've evaluated. But that's because Delta is new on the scene. So if we take a look at a more recent two week snapshot, we find that the Delta variant is in fact rapidly increasing and is on a trajectory to become the dominant strain in Ohio. In recent two-week snapshots, Delta has gone from less than 1% in the May 9 to May 22nd two-week interval to 1.9% May 23rd to June 5th, and then to 15% June 6th to June 19th, which is our most recent fairly complete snapshot. Now, looking at emerging data, for the next two week period, which is June 20th to June 3rd, which of course is incredibly preliminary. That early data is pointing to another substantial increase, likely more than double the 15% we saw in June. Now, as we move forward, knowing that about uh, the variant and how we sequence, I wanna summarize three key things that I think we all need to know about the Delta variant as it's moving in to the state of Ohio. First, Delta is highly contagious and it spreads exponentially fast almost anywhere it has gone. Estimates are that it's about 50% more contagious than Alpha or the B117 so-called UK variant, which itself was 50% more contagious than the variant which caused our winter surge. As a result, the Delta variant is moving rapidly to replace B117 or the Alpha variant as our dominant form of COVID-19. Secondly, Delta is a real threat to the unvaccinated or those who are not yet fully vaccinated. According to the CDC, current data suggests that 99.5% of COVID-19 in the United States has occurred 
among unvaccinated people. And experience in the UK also suggests that those who are younger than 50 may now be more than twice as likely to be infected. And this actually makes a lot of sense when you consider the very high vaccination rates among those older than 50 that are present both in the UK and here in Ohio. And according to a recent Lancet study, Delta is much more likely to cause someone to be hospitalized if they're unvaccinated than the Alpha variant was. So the reality is we now have two Ohios, an Ohio that is vaccinated and protected on the one hand, and an Ohio that is unvaccinated and vulnerable to Delta on the other. Looking at places like Missouri, which have been dealing with high rates of the Delta variant, it appears that communities with low vaccination rates are at particular risk of what have been called hyperlocal outbreaks, concentrating the devastating impact of this disease in those communities. And lastly, vaccination remains our best defense and in fact offers excellent protection. All three of the vaccines offer very high rates of protection against Delta hospitalization and death. And while yes, there are potential side effects from vaccination, just like there are from any antibiotic or any medication, those risks are small indeed compared with the risks of COVID-19 for people of any age. Now, joining me today is Dr. Andy Thomas, Chief Clinical Officer of the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Uh, and Dr. Thomas, I I'd like to turn to you uh, because we're hearing reports that the Delta variant is more contagious and perhaps more severe. What are you seeing in your hospitals? And are you seeing that hospitalization is happening more among the unvaccinated? Morning, Dr. Vanderhoff, and thank you very much for uh, having me here this morning and representing the the zone leads uh, on the on the call this morning. Uh, so, first of all, I agree with everything you've just gone through in terms of your summary of the Delta variant, the importance of uh, vaccination, and the potential impact of the Delta variant on those who aren't vaccinated. I think the the key message that I describe to my patients and to individuals and groups that I speak with is the way the virus is transmitted from my mouth or my nose to your mouth or your nose is still the same as it was before. But what the Delta variant, the difference for the Delta variant is it takes less of the virus going from my mouth or my nose to yours uh, to potentially infect you. So the, the, the route of transmission of the virus is the same. So it's the, the same things we've been talking about that have protected people all along with either distancing or masking. For those that are unvaccinated, there are some things they can do to reduce their risk, especially for those groups of individuals who aren't eligible to be vaccinated, i.e. those that are under age 12. But I think your, your point's a really good one, that the power of vaccination and, and what we've been seeing uh, here in the Central Ohio hospitals over the last a couple of months. We don't have the full uh, June data yet, but since since April, really at a time when a large percentage of the adult population was able to be vaccinated, about 
90% of the hospital admissions here in the central Ohio area have been those that are either partially or unvaccinated. And only about 10% of those hospital admissions with active COVID have been in uh, vaccinated groups. But many of those patients have other medical conditions like active cancer treatment. That, uh, still, I'm sure they're more protected than they would have been if they hadn't been vaccinated. And there are many people in those patient categories that are vaccinated that aren't in the hospital, even if they get COVID. But it's it's clear, just like the national data that's showing, you know, really 1% uh, of the mortalities from COVID nationally now are in vaccinated patients. 99% are in those that are either partially or unvaccinated. I think that the Delta variant just makes the case even more clear for the importance of vaccination to reduce your risk of getting a more contagious virus. Uh, it, it, to some degree with the Delta variant, this is to be expected. This is the same thing that you and I and others were talking about with uh, some of the folks on the call today in the, in the press back in February and March, looking at the UK variant that was more contagious, outcompeting other versions of the virus. And by late April, early May, we had really the UK variant becoming the predominant variant in the state of Ohio. We're seeing the same with the Delta variant now, where we're seeing this doubling time over each two-week period uh, to the point uh, that, that it will eventually become the predominant uh, variant in the state. So. I, I think uh, uh, in terms of hospitalization, which was one of your, your questions, we are seeing a slight rise over the past uh, uh, seven days. I think some of that rise is most likely a small bump in cases coming out of the July 4th holiday that we're now seeing those cases become hospitalizations. But I think the reality is we've gone uh, in our zone, uh, zone two, which is uh, about a third of the state, from the high 40s of patients in the hospital uh, 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 the, the last week of June, first week of July, to the mid-60s of patients in the hospital. Now, compare that to 1,200 patients in the hospital on our worst day back in December. So the, the numbers we're at now are where we were in about mid-June. They aren't unprecedented by any means, but they are uh, uh, on the rise. And what we don't know, as we've talked about with the press multiple times over the course of this pandemic, we hope that that rise will peak and come down, but we don't know that yet. And that's why we're, we're, we're certainly tracking those numbers on a daily basis and making sure that we're following uh, the data and responding as, as best we can to be prepared for any surge of, uh, of patients. Again, comments from Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, the state's chief medical officer, as well as Dr. Andy Thomas, chief clinical officer of the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, vice president and general manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and thanks for listening. You've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. You have to carefully monitor your health for the rest of your life. And you have an increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Cut. Take two. Action. You've been diagnosed with a new purpose, to fight for the amazing life you made for yourself. To look that risk of heart disease square in the face and say, no, not me. You've been given a new opportunity to live. Get started at NoDiabetesByHeart.org.
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone, Dr. Avenel Joseph, who is the Vice President of Policy at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, first, tell us in a nutshell what the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is the largest national philanthropy that's dedicated to uh, health. We believe that everyone in America has a right to uh, live the healthiest life possible, and we work towards that. And this expanded child tax credit that is uh, ramping up this week must be a real hallmark piece of policy for you folks. It's really fantastic. We know that health and poverty are critically integrated. You um, can't achieve your best in health and well-being if you are trying to choose between uh, paying the rent and, and getting a healthy meal on the table. So being able to expand these child tax credits to something that lifts so many Americans, millions of Americans, out of deep poverty is a huge policy win. So people that normally receive the child tax credit on their returns in the spring, uh, from what I understand, this is an advance on that and an increase as well. That's right. There are a couple of major changes that were made as a part of the American Rescue Plan that was passed by Congress uh, and President Biden earlier this year. The first thing is that the child tax credit that was already uh, in place has been expanded in terms of the amount of money you're eligible for per child. It used to be $2,000, and you can get as much as $3,600 for each child under the age of six. The other major uh, provision is that the CTC is uh, fully refundable, which essentially means that even if you don't have the income or earnings to qualify for filing a tax return in the first place, you still have access to this child tax credit. And then the third major change is that there was a lot of flexibility given to families on how they receive this money. Instead of waiting at the end of the tax year, you can opt to get those as monthly payments to help meet the bills on a monthly basis. Instead of getting it as a direct deposit, you can opt to get it as a debit card or um, as a check that you can uh, use to pay um, to pay something um, or one of your essential bills. So there's lots of options and flexibility for families to access this credit to really help their family. And since the amount has been increased, does that mean that even though people will be getting a good chunk of that money this year, that they will still get just about as much as they normally would have in a normal year anyway in the spring? I mean, it certainly will depend on on your income, but yes, I mean, this is going to be spread out over the remainder of this year and some of 2022. I think the key thing here to remember is that the American Rescue Plan Act only made this child tax credit expansion available for one year, um, which means that in a year it expires and all of these kids that have been lifted out of poverty will now be plunged right back in if we don't make this policy permanent. There are many who are calling and working with Congress to uh, attempt to make the child tax credit permanent as a part of the next legislation that passes. Talking with Dr. Avenel Joseph, Vice President of Policy at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Are the people who are eligible for this people who sometimes fall through the cracks and never receive because maybe they don't apply for it or realize they're eligible for this? And if so, what is the effort to reach out to them now? That, that is absolutely right. And what is a major win as a part of this policy, the child tax credit has been around for many, many years. But unfortunately, the way that it was structured, it meant that those who actually needed it the most 
those who were the poorest in this country, those who had families living in deep poverty, actually couldn't access the child tax credit. You were ineligible if you made too little, which is a real weird um, a policy nuance that existed before. We've changed that in this new expansion that's uh, starting today. As a result, people who don't file tax returns are essential workers who, uh, who are in jobs that pay hourly wages that are far beyond, far below what we know is a living wage. Those workers and those families are now eligible for the child tax credit, even if they've never filed a tax return before. So I think my major message um, this morning is for, for anyone who has, is questioning whether or not you're eligible, for somebody who doesn't know if, if because you've never filed a tax return you'll be able to get this tax credit, my answer to you is yes, you can. There's a very simple portal that you can go on to at irs.gov to be able to apply to receive these resources. And we hope that all Americans who are eligible do, um, do do that portal so that they can get this, receive this money and these resources. And for those who have been mired in poverty, this is, uh, as people have been saying, it's life-changing. That's absolutely right. I mean, this leaves more money for families with low income. Um, over 90% of families with children will receive an annual average benefit of over $4,000. It means lower rates of poverty across the board. Um, when you combine the child tax credit with other provisions of the American Rescue Plan, it is estimated that it will reduce childhood poverty by 50%. That's huge. It will reduce racial and ethnic economic disparities as well. And in the state of Ohio alone, we know that if this uh, provision is made permanent, if this expansion is made permanent, Ohio families will earn more than $7 billion annually. That's $7 billion for families who need it in the state of Ohio, $7 billion more into the state's economy. So if there's a head of household who is maybe just finding out about this and, and has not been aware of what's going on, do they need to do anything? Uh, yes. You should check. If, if you have filed a tax return in the last two years, you should check your uh, direct deposit account, whatever account is linked to your tax um, filings, and uh, you should see a payment that comes through that says CTC. That stands for Child Tax Credit. If you do not see that, if you do not, have, or if you have not filed a tax return in the last two years, you need to go to irs.gov. You can go there both to estimate what your payment will be and how that can spread over the next few months if you are opting for monthly payments. And you can go there to register to receive payments in whatever form um, that best suits your family. Okay, and this is for folks well into the middle income range, right? That's right. Every family, um, with the exception of the highest earners in this country, are eligible for this tax credit. Um, I think this is a recognition, um, a rightful recognition from Congress and from this administration that it is expensive to raise children in this country. It is um, expensive if you want to find decent child care for your child so that you can go to work. Um, these things, uh, for many families, are actually a full-time job. You have one parent who stays home with children all day long as a full-time job. And in the past, we've never, um, we, that's not been a part of our economic reality or recognition for those families. And this does that for the first time. 
Dr. Avenel Joseph, Vice President of Policy at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, that's all that I have right now. Thank you for having me. Great. Thanks uh, for the information. Sure appreciate it. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Here's Tracy. Securing the special election. It's less than a month until voters make their first big decision on who should replace Congressman Steve Stivers. So my job is to try to remind every Ohioan that for the next four weeks, they have the opportunity to participate in early voting if they live in the 15th Congressional District. I went one-on-one with Ohio's elections chief to see how your vote is being protected. We have to send people to Washington who are willing to shake the system up. From books to ballots, the author of Hillbilly Elegy wants to replace Senator Rob Portman. But how does he define his candidacy? This really is going to save lives. And if we can spare another family from going through this, I would do anything to spare another family. Stopping hazing, starting in Ohio. The victory for families touched by tragedy and what they hope happens nationwide. Face the State begins now. summer, but it's election season in Ohio. Mark your calendars. August 3rd, 2021 is a special election for Central Ohio. The main focus will be filling the seat left empty by this man, retiring 15th Congressional Representative Steve Stivers. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State on this Sunday. I'm Tracy Townsend. There's been a lot of talk nationwide about election security and suppression. I talked with Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who says he's confident that Ohio stands for being a state where voting is convenient and trustworthy. All right. So we have um, early voting underway. I feel like we just did this. I know it's it's exciting, though, for us, because we're uh, already into the early voting period for this congressional special election. And here in central Ohio, that means the 15th congressional district. So if uh, if you were accustomed to having Congressman Steve Stivers representing you, he's resigned to take the leadership role at the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. And so now we need to run both a primary and a general. The primary election is happening this summer. Of course, the general election will be this November. And so my job is 
just to try to remind every Ohioan that they have the opportunity to participate in early voting if they live in the 15th Congressional District. And, and that means eight to five at your board of elections. And that means the week before the election, we're going to stay open from eight to seven. And then, of course, we have Saturday early voting and Sunday early voting that weekend before the election. We're one of only very few states in the country that offers that. So this is something that we're proud of. But now's also the time, Tracy, to get in your request for an absentee ballot. There's still plenty of time to go to voteohio.gov and print off the form. If you don't have a form or a printer, rather, you can get the form from your uh, BMV locations, from a library. But the easiest thing to do if you don't have a printer is just to go to voteohio.gov slash make your own. And we give people instructions to just take a plain old piece of notebook paper and a pen. And as long as you provide us all the information and then mail it to your board, Board of elections, they will put a ballot in the mail to you, and uh, and it couldn't be easier to vote from the comfort of home. Up in the Cleveland area, Congresswoman Marsha Fudge was uh, nominated and appointed by President Biden to serve on her cabinet. Uh, that's an exciting thing to have an Ohioan serving on the president's cabinet. She's the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, and so there is a special congressional primary underway as well to replace her. And then there are some local uh, issues, things like liquor options or levies uh, for property tax issues in many local communities around Ohio. But yeah, the two the two main things. Uh, are that 11th congressional district and 15th congressional district primaries. And that's what uh, a lot of Ohioans are excited about coming up here in just a few weeks. So voters and our viewers are hearing a lot about elections and their rights to vote and restrictions and voter laws. What do you want them to know about voting in Ohio? that Ohio is an example for the rest of the nation to follow. It's unfortunate in many ways that there's a lot of hyperbole, there's a lot of exaggeration that really comes from both sides of the aisle. I think that both both political parties, politicians, sometimes have self-interested reasons for you know hyping some of these things. I think that you'll hear a lot of talk about voter suppression on one side, a lot of talk about voter fraud on the other. My message to Ohioans is that voter suppression and voter fraud are never acceptable. They're, they're never acceptable. Reasonable people on both sides of the aisle should be able to say, we're not going to tolerate voter fraud. We're not going to tolerate voter suppression. But the good news is, in Ohio, both of those are exceedingly rare. Ohio has professional bipartisan elections administrators. And Secretary LaRose says that helps our state stand apart from others. More than a dozen candidates are competing to replace Stivers. You can find the full list of voting locations and early voting hours at 10tv.com slash featured links. So, okay, who's running? We are following this race and the candidates with our partners at the Columbus Dispatch. The Republican side of the race is crowded. Candidates include a coal lobbyist, business owner, and a county commissioner. There's also an attorney and some former and current elected leaders. As for the Democrats, the list includes a state representative and a retired Army colonel. The winners next month will face off in the November 2nd general election. About a year later, in November of 2022, voters will decide who replaces Senator Rob Portman. We have to send people to Washington who are willing to shake the system up because the leaders of this country who have plundered it have decided they're going to reward their friends with special tax breaks and not the companies right here in Middletown, Ohio. That's author J.D. Vance, who's running for the Portman seat. He's the author of Hillbilly Elegy. Perhaps you've read the book or seen the movie. There's been some question, though, about where he aligns in the Republican Party. At one point, he criticized Donald Trump, but now he's praising him and he's deleted any negative 
negative tweets about the former president. Listen to what he said on Fox News on Tuesday. Like a lot of uh, people, I, I criticized Trump back in 2016, and I'd ask folks not to judge me by based on what I, I said in 2016, because I've been very open about the fact that I, I did say those critical things, and uh, I regret them, and I regret being wrong about the guy. I think that he was a good president. I think he made a lot of good decisions for people, and I think he took a lot of flack. And as you probably appreciate, Alicia, you know, I've, I've taken a lot of flack myself over the last few years for standing up for the president's voters, but also standing up for the agenda. And I think that's the most important thing, is, is not what you said five years ago, but whether you're willing to stand up and take take the heat and take the hits for actually defending the interests of the American people, because that's what what this business of politics should be all about. Republican candidates have included Josh Mandel, Jane Timken and Mike Gibbons, to name a few. The major Democratic contender is Tim Ryan, who is the current congressman for the District 13. And we did learn this week that Ryan's campaign says it has raised more than two million dollars in the second quarter of 2021. That does put him on track with the Republican candidates. Ohio's other U.S. Senator, Democrat Sherrod Brown, shared pictures for the first time on Wednesday, July 6th, exactly six months since the insurrection on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. You can see the damage to the desks, the shattered glass, the furniture flipped over. Again, those pictures from Senator Sherrod Brown. Now, the House is in the process of forming a 13-member select committee to investigate that deadly assault on 1-6. You'll Recall, Senate Republicans blocked a bill to create an independent commission. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has named eight members to that panel, seven Democrats and one Republican, Congresswoman Liz Cheney. We have an obligation to have a thorough, uh, sober investigation. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has yet to fill his five spots. The U.S. Capitol Police are moving forward with changes based on the inspector general's reports, including enhanced training and planning, increased information sharing, attainment of additional equipment and surveillance technology, and a new effort to recruit officers. Back here in Ohio, nursing homes in crisis. You can't get those memories out of your head of your loved one calling your name. He heard my voice when I went in there and I said, oh, my God, what happened? He, he said, Babby, Babby, help me. Coming up, what this family says led to their loved one's injury and what's being done to help statewide. They will be close to $2,000 and it's about four weeks now. Unemployment, anger and frustration, the potential solutions from the state. First, though, Collins Law has been signed into law. What that means for your students on campus experience. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's, it's our roads. It's, it's our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. His family was left to mourn 
but they turn their grief into something positive. Governor Mike DeWine signed an anti-hazing bill into law. Collins Law sends a clear message. If you were involved in hazing, you'll face serious consequences. The law increases hazing penalties to second-degree misdemeanors and third-degree felonies with possible prison time. 10TV's Clay Gordon spoke with families who made this day possible. Colin Wyant's mother, Kathleen, speaking about the bill two years in the making, calling it model legislation for the entire country. We have made Ohio a leader in anti-hazing reform across the country. It's been an agonizing process for Kathleen Wyant and her family. And I can say that it feels as fresh as it did about a month after Colin died. So I've just learned, okay, I have to accept that this might be how it always is. So I have to learn coping skills to manage that. Their son, Colin, died in a hazing incident at an annex of the Sigma Pi Epsilon fraternity at Ohio University in 2018. A law now in his name. It should just be nothing but joy, but, you know, I just can't stop thinking about what brought us here was even Colin taken from us and, and all the pain that comes from that and that no matter what we do, even with all this work, um, nothing can bring him back, which is so hard. Also speaking, Sherry Fultz. It's only been four months. Do I want to be here? No. Obviously, I'd want my son back. Investigators say Stonefaults died at an off-campus fraternity drinking event at Bowling Green State University in March. Since then, the Wyants and Foltzes have joined together. It's the most unusual bond because you know that they're the only people who truly get you. It's nice to have them. It's nice to have the support that we have. Working together to prevent this from happening to another family. We're going to increase the transparency, education, all those things that will make a difference. And it's not just in Greek life on campus. With the transparency piece, um, parents will have all the information about an organization, not just fraternities, but any clubs, teams, or organizations their students want to join. I think it's incumbent upon university presidents moving forward to make sure that parents understand that that's available to them. I asked the governor about the future of fraternities and sororities on college campuses in Ohio. We have an opportunity now. This is a new beginning in regard to our quest in Ohio to get rid of hazing. And let's let's let it play out. Let's see how this goes before we cross the next next bridge. Clay Gordon, 10 TV News. Although Collins Law was signed over the week, it won't go into effect for 90 days. Some states don't have anti-hazing laws. The states that don't have those laws include Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, and New Mexico. We have a closer look at how hazing laws look in every state. You'll find it on our website, 10tv.com slash verify. Ohioans who received an overpayment of unemployment benefits either from an error by the state or their employer will get a waiver letter from the state. The state's unemployment director gave an update on how the department is working to get back stolen money. The state says it's only been able to retrieve about $150 million of the $440 million it knows of that was stolen from the state's unemployment system. The amount of unemployment fraud is not just impacting people whose bank accounts were hijacked, but also those who had their checks stopped because of suspected fraud. Here's Kevin Landers with a closer look. I've been getting unemployment since last year, and then I got a notice that uh, I had to prove my identity after getting unemployment for a year. Ransom Rose is not alone in his frustration with ODJFS. Uh, they owe me close to $2,000, and it's about four weeks now. Rose, like many Ohioans, had his claim flagged for potential fraud. He said when he called the Benefit Center to get answers, he didn't get anywhere. I was on follow for two hours. Is that the first time that's happened to you? That's the first time I was able to get through. 
I've never been able to get through up until then. The head of Ohio's Job and Family Service, Matt Damschroeder, said the state has created a fraud team to help identify and catch those who stole unemployment benefits, but wasn't able to say how quickly people like Rose could get their money back. We continue to work aggressively each and every day to ensure that Ohioans in need receive the benefits and the job search support that they deserve and need. Uh, I would say respectfully, Mr. Damschroeder, your unemployment system is totally broken and your people are not well trained. Director Dam Schroeder said people whose bank accounts were hijacked by fraudsters need to know this. There is no evidence that would indicate uh, that a uh, data breach of any ODJFS systems uh, were, was, you know, that exfiltrated data, uh, you know, in, you know, resulted in uh, an individual's account being taken over. As for this out of work truck driver, he says without the unemployment benefits he's owed, he wonders how long he can keep a roof over his head. My creditors won't wait for the state of unemployment to get their act together. Again, that was Kevin Landers reporting. We also learned the state now has 800 call takers and average wait times for general unemployment claims is 10 minutes. The head of the state's fraud investigation unit says it could take years before Ohio can prosecute those responsible for stealing millions of unemployment dollars. The FBI, the U.S. Secret Service and 50 banks are all working to find the money and the people responsible. Now, if you need help with unemployment, we have resources on our website Yes, it's at 10tv.com. All right, Ohio's attorney general is warning elected leaders about commenting on various investigations, specifically the investigations into the deadly shootings of Micaiah Bryant and Andrew Teague. Those cases are now headed to grand jury. Bryant's shooting happened on April 20th on Legion Lane. As shown on police body camera video, Micaiah Bryant is seen going after two women with a knife. Columbus police officer Nicholas Reardon fatally shot the 16-year-old girl. In March, Andrew Teague led Columbus police on a chase that ended with him crashing into other drivers on I-270. Law enforcement said there was an exchange of gunfire. Columbus police officer John Kiefer and Deputy Michael Severance fired their weapons, fatally wounding Teague. A.G. Dave Yost warned elected leaders about making comments about cases like these before they are fully investigated. As a, an elected leader, let me say that I am very bothered by particularly elected leaders who ought to know better, who immediately rush to judgment, who call for particular actions, whether it be uh, an arrest, an indictment. Yost has referred those cases to the Franklin County Prosecutor's Office. The prosecutor says both cases will go to the grand jury and there is no timeline. The chief of the Columbus Division of Police announced a new detail right after the holiday. It's aimed at cutting down on violence. The new park detail rolled out with 25 to 35 bike trained police officers who will focus on patrolling and ensuring safety at any of the city's 170 parks. Some background on the new top cop. Chief Elaine Bryant makes history for a couple of firsts. She's the first black female and her hiring marks the first time the city of Columbus has hired a police chief from outside of the division. Chief Bryant is no stranger to law enforcement with more than two decades of experience. I talked one-on-one -on -one with the chief this week about the escalating homicide rate, a community where there is mistrust following last year's social justice protests, and as she takes the lead of a division where she's considered to be an outsider. Where do you start with a division that where there's a lot of anger and frustration and mistrust? And hey, you came from the outside. Where do you start there? Oh, well, I have to be. I have to earn their trust. 
um, as a outsider coming into their division, mm -hmm. um, it's crucial that I earn the trust of the officers that, that work with me. And I've been doing that. Mm -hmm. A lot of conversations, a lot of honest conversations. When an officer is doing the right thing, I will support them. But if an officer is doing the wrong thing, I will address that as well. So I think it's important, again, when we talk about holding people to a high standard of excellence, the officers absolutely, you know, I expect them to do the right thing mm -hmm. for the right reasons at all times. You can see more of my interview with Chief Elaine Bryant at 10TV.com. Some information in the U.S. Census isn't available just yet. So some are asking, was it ever even finished? Coming up, we verify what you might be seeing on social media. Before I was adopted, I felt like nobody wanted me. I felt like my life was already over. At a certain age, they don't want you. You're troubled and stuff. Even if I wanted to be adopted, who would adopt a 17-year-old? Inside, I knew, like, I'm not a troubled kid. I know what I'm in for, why I'm here. My biggest fear was that I would age out and not know how to be sufficient on my own. I had nightmares every single day at my birth mom's house. It was just really scary for me living there. I was scared. I was lost and I felt hopeless. I felt like, don't I deserve to feel happy and loved? I just wish I'd gotten adopted sooner. Unfortunately, the number of children waiting to be adopted from foster care is on the rise. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is the only public nonprofit charity in the U.S. focused exclusively on foster care adoption. You can help. Go to DaveThomasFoundation.org to learn more. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Even though it's 2021, detailed data from the 2020 census still isn't available, that has some viewers wondering what is taking so long. Brandon Lewis from our National Verify team looks into the latest status of the census. Normally by now, we have detailed data from the U.S. Census that helps redraw legislative districts due to population changes. But we don't yet. And that has Verify viewer Laverne asking if the government even completed it. So, Laverne, let's verify. Our sources are the U.S. Census Bureau and the National Conference of State Legislatures. As you can imagine, this all starts with the pandemic. The census says it planned to start household visits in the spring of 2020. But that was right when the U.S. began shutting down. Counting was delayed by several months, but it did happen. On April 26th of this year, the census reported a final tally of more than 331 million Americans. However, it wasn't the full data. The law requires detailed information to help redraw legislative districts, and the census says that is delayed until mid-August. The National Conference of State Legislatures says the impact is trickling down to about 20 states who are mandated to redistrict this year, including New Jersey and Virginia, which have state elections this November that were supposed to be based on the new data. So, Laverne, we can verify it's true. The 2020 census was completed, but it's taking longer than usual to get the results because of the pandemic. Well, you've been hearing about staffing issues in industries across the state. And when it comes to nursing homes, investigators say a lack of staffing is one of the biggest sources of frustration for families. The issues range from missed medications to slow response times. But one family believes the lack of staffing led to something even worse, their father's injury. 10TV's Kevin Landers has their experience and what's being done to address their concerns. 
you can't get those memories out of your head of your loved one calling your name. He heard my voice when I went in there and I said, oh my God, what happened? He, he said, Babby, Babby, help me. This is the photo Babette Hernandez Martinez took of her 68-year-old father inside the room of his nursing home. She believes her father, John Wallace, fell out of his bed and she blames the nursing home for allowing it to happen. Poor training, lack of staffing. Um, I think lack of staffing is probably a definite issue because he was on that floor for at least 23 minutes. We're not naming the nursing home because it's not facing any sanctions for now. But according to Medicare.gov, it received a two-star rating, meaning below average for staffing. A red flag, said the state's long-term ombudsman. You should be concerned. Ask the facility about it. Why do you have a have only two stars staffing? What's happening? Um, you know, is it because you don't have a registered nurse? Nursing home staffing is a statewide problem. There is absolutely a crisis. Peter Van Runkel runs the Ohio Health Care Association. It represents a thousand assisted living communities, home care and hospice service providers across the state. He says one way to solve the labor shortage, pay more. Have to. There's there's no way around it. But it's not that easy, he says. Many of the nursing homes are government-supported, and they can only pay what the government is willing to reimburse. You can't go and raise your price to the government. Um, yeah. You can't go raise your price to an insurance company. They're going to pay you what they have decided they're going to pay you. As for the family of John Wallace, they want to see nursing homes improve the care they offer their residents. If these places cannot offer that to them, they should not be up and running and, and taking in more patients. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. To help address the issue of staffing inside nursing homes, a Cleveland man has created what's called the Nursing Facility Patient Bill of Rights. It would require every nursing home to have specific nurse-to-patient ratios, among other things. If enough people sign the petition, it will appear on next November's ballot. You can read more about it at 10TV.com. We thank you all for joining us here today, and we'll see you back here next week for Face the State. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. There's a place to share the joy of your team winning it all and a place to share a laugh about skiing and taking a fall. There's a place to share photos of pets or singing in the choir or the time you ate a pepper and your mouth was on fire. But we could all be better at sharing how we're feeling inside. 76% of employees have struggled with at least one issue that affected their mental health. When you share, you're not alone. Ask about your company's emotional health benefits. Visit heart.org slash sharing. Brought to you by the American Heart Association. When I grew up, I want to be a doctor because that's a really important job. I would help kids get better and make everything super fun. I'd have a cool waiting room with games, toys, and a huge TV. If your child is sick over and over again, it could be PI, a serious defect of the immune system. Early testing gives children a chance to dream. And I'll give every kid a cherry lollipop because that's the best flavor. Jeffrey Modell Foundation, helping children reach for their dreams. Visit info4pi.org. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Dariana. We call him uh, Day Day for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. The craziest thing was believing 
that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Matthew. Oh, oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. The strength of our country hasn't just been won on the battlefield. It's won every day in our communities when we come together in our toughest times. For over 100 years, the American Legion has been strengthening communities across our nation by providing life-saving help and support to our veterans and neighbors during times like we're facing today. We are the American Legion, veterans strengthening America. To learn how you can help, visit legion.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone, Dr. Stephanie Zaza. She's president of the American College of Preventive Medicine, also a former longtime medical officer for the CDC, and she's originally from Northeast Ohio. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. I was looking over your bio, and uh, you went to Youngstown State and uh, other education in Northeast Ohio? That's right. I went to the, originally it was called the Neo-UCOM program, it's now called Neomed. So I did my undergraduate at Youngstown State, my medical degree at Neomed. And also a public health degree from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, which plays a big role, I think, in what we're going to talk about. Yes, it does. And what we are going to talk about is uh, the kind of aftermath, (laughs) hopefully it's uh, heading toward the aftermath of this pandemic. And before we go any farther into that, what is your take on where we're at right now? Are you confident that we are going to pull away from this thing? You know, I think, yes, I I am confident. We have the... The lead up to where we are today was about figuring out how to track this disease, how to treat the disease, and how to prevent it. The ultimate prevention technology that we have is vaccine, which we now have. We'll be continuing to manufacture vaccine and get it out to people, make sure we have good access points. And um, we've been doing a a pretty good job, I think, of um, creating the demand for it. So, you know, convincing people to want to get it. Um, Vaccines are tricky that way. And, you know, some people are skeptical and they they want, they have a lot of questions and they want to know more before they get get the vaccine. But I think we have to keep pressing on that in order to emerge out of this situation and back to some semblance of the way we like to organize ourselves as a society. We, you know, we like to travel, we like to visit, we like to have commerce 
around the country and then around the world. And to get back to that, we do need to achieve pretty high levels of, of vaccination rates, not just here, but around the world. It's been a remarkable journey when you consider that early last year, you know, the, the first rumblings about this thing, it was hard for just general people to understand how serious this might be to everything stopping in its tracks in March. And now here we are a year later with what seems to be almost a miraculous availability of rolling out this vaccine on a worldwide scale. Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple of really interesting points embedded in, in what you just said. Part of shutting things down was to give us time to get to this place where we have a, a pretty deep understanding of how to prevent infection, either by preventing contact with folks um, who are sick or getting a vaccine and, and sort of um, improving your own immunity so that if you are in contact with somebody who's sick, you, you are protected. Um, we came a long way for a couple of reasons, really quickly, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, there are a lot of public health techniques that we were able to roll out and put in place because we've been studying them and, and understanding them for a long time. Um, and I would say the development of the vaccine so quickly is, um, it's remarkable, but it is based on a pretty... Um, amazing platforms that had been developed by through basic research investments over a period of over 20 years. So that vaccine didn't come out of nowhere. It came from the, sort of the foresight of people who knew that these types of viruses, um, there was this potential for this type of technology that we were able to take advantage of and move very quickly. So it is extraordinary. But I think we also need to be thinking, and as we look to the future, how do we build more of that kind of infrastructure in the public health arena, more of those platforms to allow us to jump quickly when we find that there's uh, a new threat out there that we can that we can take care of quickly. And through all of this, especially with the advent of social media and just uh, general more awareness of people, the trust in public health has been on trial over the last year. Has that surprised you? Yes and, and no. I think the, um, you know, public health has its ways of doing things and it often operates very quietly. I think what happened, and, and people trust that it's kind of operating because when we're successful in prevention, nothing happens. So it's often very hard to kind of brag about the successes in public health. Once this kind of blew out into um, a very political sphere. I think all of the, the ways that public health works as science changes, the message changes, that became very confusing for people. And I think it became, um, it just became very challenging to operate in this environment we have today. Um, social media has you know, social media can be a force for good, and it can really move information quickly. But it can also move misinformation really quickly, and that's something that public health um, departments and public health officials have had to learn how to cope with. It's been a, a new challenge. Talking with Dr. Stephanie Zaza, Northeast Ohio native and president of the American College of Preventive Medicine. Well, I guess sooner or later, another one may come down the pike, maybe in our lifetime, maybe not. Will we be ready for it, and will it be handled differently, do you think? I think that um, we we are ready. We're learning, obviously, a lot of lessons from, from this 
um, experience, and we will continue to learn lessons and, and apply that learning to improving systems. One thing that sort of cycles, um, it's part of the political cycle, is um, a focus on health diplomacy around the world and making sure that we have good relationships and, and are able to, when either we discover a new threat here in the United States or if another country discovers it, that we're able to communicate about that in ways that don't generate reprisals or recriminations, but instead generate a leap to action, a leap to positive action to, to um, try to ward off the situation and, and contain it before it can, um, moves into community spread. That can be very difficult to do, but it is possible to to do that and to, and to build those relationships and those systems when we're not in the middle of a of a global crisis. So, so we do have some work to do there, and I think that um, there's a, a true effort to to continue to build and repair the relationships um, around the world that that we need to do to to prevent the next pandemic. It will also depend on us in part as individuals. One way we can help um, make ourselves more resilient, both as individuals and communities, is to pay attention to our own health. You know, we've seen in this outbreak, um, this pandemic, that the people who were most vulnerable to very severe illness or death are people with underlying chronic diseases. And and the ways that we can really try to prevent those diseases are, are well known. So the more we can do that um, and, and create that resilience through prevention, the healthier we'll be, the more resilient we'll be. So, so everybody has a role to play in preventing the next pandemic. When this uh, first began to hit, and even now, today, with, you know, some of the so-called long haulers that are still having symptoms even a year after they have had the virus, it seems to to be a very mysterious sort of illness still. But do you think that enough has been learned about it that maybe the next time that some sort of a different strain hits, that maybe we will be farther along the learning curve on what's going to happen? Well, absolutely. You know, this has been an extraordinary year of scientific learning. When you think about what we knew about this virus um, 18 months ago, which was nothing, and what we know about it today, which is a considerable amount, we will, of course, continue to learn more about it and and learn more about these long-haul symptoms and um, people who are experiencing a chronic version of of this illness. Um, We'll continue to learn more about that, and that will, to some extent, that learning will be applicable to other types of coronaviruses, other strains of coronaviruses, um, but may or may not apply to other virus types. Uh, There's a very specific family of viruses. So, you know, again, it's uh, what we've learned about how to do this research will certainly apply. So I think that, that we will learn quite a lot of lessons from this experience that will apply to any future pandemic threat. Is there any concern in the medical world that we don't hear much about that there could be sort of a scarlet fever type thing with this where younger people who get COVID today might see the results of it uh, negatively in 20 years or whatever? You know, that's that's a bit outside of my knowledge base and purview. I would I would refer you to somebody who's studying the, the long-term clinical and immunological effects. You know, we are seeing some kinds of, of um, unusual immune 
constellation of symptoms in, in children that I think are concerning, but, uh, but regarding the long-term effects, I, I think I'd have to refer you to somebody who studies immunology and um, long-term effects of a disease like this. Fair enough. Talking with Dr. Stephanie Zaza, president of the American College of Preventive Medicine. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, you know, one of the things, I mentioned this briefly, is this idea of prevention and helping ourselves to be more resilient. This is something that we care a lot about as preventive medicine physicians. So I just say, if, if folks are interested in learning more about preventive medicine, what it means from a, an individual perspective or even from a public health perspective, uh, they can find more information on our website, which is the acpm.org, just acpm.org, American College of Preventive Medicine. Okay, Dr. Stephanie Zaza, again, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.